Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Wonderful to see you all. Thank you so much for joining us in worship today. And thank you also to those of you who are watching us online. This morning, I have a question for you. It's a rhetorical question, so you don't have to answer out loud. But you can if you want to, but you don't, you don't have to. I really want you to think about it. So if you've seen the title, if you have the outline, it's Loving God's Word. And so my question to you is, do you love the Bible? Do you love the Bible? Now you may think, Pastor, that's a really odd question. Do I love the Bible? What do you mean? Are you asking me, do I think the Bible is my favorite book? I'm a Christian, so I'm not supposed to like it. Are you saying, do I like the Bible? Is that what you're asking? No, what I'm asking is, do you have a deep affection, a deep love for God's Word? Does reading, spending time in God's Word, thinking about it, does it do something to you? Do you feel something when you think about God's Word or when you read it? Now, you may say, maybe, I, I don't know. Why is that important, Pastor? Why are you asking me that? I know the Bible's important, and perhaps you're a Christian, you're like, yeah, I know the Bible's important, but it is just one book. It's just a book. Why are you asking if I feel this way about it? Well, because this book has an important message, and it's a message we need to really understand before we even look at what we're going to read today. And that message is that to love God's Word is to love God. To love God's Word, to love the Bible is to love God. As well, as you can see, a, a quote from a Puritan author, Thomas Manton, below it, it says, The Word is God's epistle and love letter to our souls. The reason why loving the Bible is the same as loving God is because it's His Word, His message to us. It's Him speaking to us, His words of love. It's Him communicating, This is who I am, and this is what I'm like. It reveals His person and His character. Now, if that sounds a little strange to you, maybe think about perhaps a relationship in in your own life. Maybe somebody has written something to you that meant something about it, that it was a a note or a message, a letter of deep value. I know for me, uh, my wife and I on holidays, instead of buying each other gifts, we write each other a letter. And then I cherish those. I hold on to those. Why? Because it's a message from her. It communicates her love. It tells me about her. It helps me understand her. It reminds me of her. When I look at them, maybe you've experienced something like that. Someone's written a letter who cares about you, or uh, maybe someone sent you a text message you treasure, or a a Snapchat that you screenshotted, whatever it is. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with somebody has sent something to you that communicates through words who they are. Well, the same is true with God. He's communicated to us who he is through his word, the Bible. So if it's true that to love God's Word is to love God, then how do we do it? How do we love God's Word? Well, maybe let's look at that other part. What does the Bible say about loving God? How are we supposed to love the Lord? This is a passage we actually just read a few minutes ago, but I'm going to read the, the full context of it. This is from Mark 12. It's a scribe comes up and talks to Jesus and asks him a question. So this scribe came up, heard them disputing, seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answers, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. He answers, what does it look like to love God? It looks like loving Him with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now the idea he's getting at is that we're loving God with our whole person, but these same ideas, heart, soul, mind, strength, we're actually going to see reflected in the passage we're going to look at today. Psalm 119, verses 97 through 112. Psalm 119, 97 through 112. This summer, we've actually been going through Psalm 119. A psalm is a, a song of praise. This one is actually a love song about God's law and His Word. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, longer than many books. And if you haven't been here, this psalm is structured as an acrostic poem, where every eight verses starts with a particular letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So there's a little difference between Hebrew and English, but fortunately for us today, uh, our passage is two letters, Mem and Noon, very similar to our letter M and our letter N. I took a picture uh, the other day of these verses as they show up in my Hebrew Bible. So Hebrew reads from right to left. So if you look 97 to 104, it has the same letter, 105 to 112, it starts with the same little symbol. Those are the letters we're looking at today. Last week, Pastor Tom talked about how God's word strengthens us in times of persecution. Our passage today, 97 through 112, is kind of following up on that. The psalmist is telling us how he responds to that persecution, and he responds by loving God's word, by clinging to the one that he loves. And the psalmist loves God by loving his word with all his mind, all his strength, all his soul, and all his heart. It's a little different order from the order Jesus gave, but it's the same truth. So if you're not already there, please turn your Bibles to the book of Psalms, 97 through 112. And once you are there, I'd ask you to please stand to honor the reading of God's Word, and then follow along as I read our passage. If you want to use the blue Bible in the seat back in front of you, it should be on page 609, or we'll also have it up on the screen. So I'm going to read Psalm 119, starting in verse 97. The psalmist writes this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Verse 101, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. 
Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Verse 111. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Let's pray. God, thank you for this word, this book, that tells us of your love for us, that helps us understand who you are. I pray, God, that you help us to respond in turn. May we love your word with all our mind, with all our strength, with all our soul, with all our heart. God, we can't do that on our own. Our hearts need to be transformed first. So I pray that Christ may transform us so that our hearts love you, so that we're able to love both you and your word. He is the one who makes it possible. So may our focus be on him. It's in his name, the name of Jesus, that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through this psalm, and we're going to look at those words that Jesus said in that passage of responding about how we love God. Again, as I said, the order's a little different, but the same principles come through. So first, what does it mean to love God's Word with all your mind? What does it mean to love God's Word with all your mind? Well, loving God's Word with our minds means thinking God's thoughts, filling our minds with His wisdom. Because the wisdom of God is far superior than anything else that we could find. It's far superior to any news article you could look up, any online course you could take, or any tweet you could find. God's wisdom is better than the best degree you could get and more helpful than the most popular self-help lecture because God is the source of true wisdom. As the psalmist says in verse 97, he says, I love your law, God, because he meditates, he thinks about it all day. It is his meditation all the day. Meditation means he's thinking about God's law. The British pastor Charles Spurgeon, and I promise this is the only Spurgeon quote today, (laughs) says about the psalmist, he meditated in God's word because he loved it. And then he loved it the more because he meditated in it. Both come together, loving God and loving his word flow together. Now, when it says meditation, that may strike you as an odd word. Are you talking about what those people do when they pose and they hum, something like that? No, no, that's not it. It's not emptying our mind like in Eastern religions. No, meditation is filling our mind with God's Word. It's reading God's Word, considering it, thinking about its meaning, its implication. How does that apply to me? What impact does it have on me and on others? That type of meditation, deep thinking about what God has said, brings blessing into our lives. The very first psalm talks about this. Psalm 1, the very first verses say, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits 
in the seat of scoffers. What does he do instead? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He meditates, he thinks about God's Word. And that's the key to loving God and His Word with our minds. Uh, Contemporary pastor John Piper, he says, how can I come to delight in the Word of God? Well, my answer is twofold. On the one hand, pray for new taste buds on the tongue of your heart. Pray that you would desire to delight in God's Word. But secondly, he says, meditate on the staggering promises of God to His people. Read what God has said and think about what it means for you. Because thinking about God's Word gives us wisdom. It gives us practical knowledge, wisdom, guidance that we can use each and every day. Look at verse 98. He says, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. When we have God's wisdom, we're wiser than those who do not have it. And we have His Word with us. Now, when he says, have your word, it is ever with me, that doesn't necessarily mean we're carrying around a Bible, just having it next to us. We don't get some benefit from that. Uh, In high school, I actually carried my Bible in my backpack each day. I didn't get benefit just from having it there. That, That didn't contribute anything. No, what he's talking about here is having God's word in our thoughts, constantly guiding our lives. It's knowing God's Word so well that we claim it as ours. It's our guide. It's our connection to our Heavenly Father. So this doesn't just mean it's there. It doesn't just mean it's something we glance at or something we open once for a minute and then forget about. Again, the Puritan Thomas Manton says, it's not a slight looking into them, into God's Word, that will give us this wisdom, but an intimate, constant acquaintance. We're regularly familiar with what the Bible says. We think the same way it does. The result is our mind is transformed. Our life is changed. Our life looks different in a way that other people see something different has happened to this person. It's because we've filled our mind with God's Word. The Old Testament promises this will happen. Deuteronomy 4, God speaking, or Moses is speaking, and he says, I've taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land you're entering to take possession of. Keep them, do them. That will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples, in the sight of others, who when they hear all these statutes, when they hear and they see what you're doing, they'll say, well, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. The psalmist talks about how he's experienced that in his own life. In verse 99, he says that God has given him more understanding and insight than even his teachers, those in authority over him. Why does that happen? Because he meditates on God's word. He is always thinking about it. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies are my meta. He thinks about God's Word, and it reveals something interesting to us. It's saying that the person who has the most of God's wisdom, the one who understands more about God, isn't necessarily the smartest person in the room. It isn't necessarily the most educated person. He's saying, I have these teachers who teach me about God, but because I actually spend time thinking about it, I understand more of His truth than even them. 
That happens because, as one scholar, J. Stephen Ewell, puts it, wisdom is moral, not intellectual. Wisdom is practical, not theoretical. God's wisdom is not something you can learn in a classroom. It's something God must instill into our lives through His Word. And this has happened to the psalmist. And when God does this for him, he also gains more understanding, he says in verse 100, than the aged, than the old, than the elders, than the ancients. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Unlike them, he keeps, he obeys what God's Word says. This is kind of tied into the verse we just read, but it's telling us another truth, which is that age doesn't always equal wisdom. Just because we've lived a lot, experienced a lot, doesn't always mean that we understand God's wisdom and truth. Age and experience can bring wisdom, but not always. One author, Danny Aiken, put it this way, life experiences are helpful, but they are not infallible. They're not perfect. We can understand them wrong. We can miss what God was actually doing. Someone may appear wise to the world around us. Oh, they've been through a lot. They understand a lot, but they may lack true, deep, godly wisdom. There's examples of this even in the Bible. You may be familiar with the story of Job. He was a man who was experiencing great suffering. And three of his friends come, and they speak to him. They try to explain Job's suffering. Job, this is why you're suffering in that way. But there's also another man there. There's a young man named Elihu or Elihu who's listening to this, and he realizes that these three men, even though they're much older than him, they're not, they're not getting what's happening. They're not understanding what's going on. And this is how he responds. He said, I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. I'll listen to these older men. But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. Now, now hear me, I'm not saying old people are always wrong. That's not what I'm trying to convey at, at all. There is much to be learned from experience, but experience itself is not always 100% accurate. It's not always correct according to God's Word, because experience is subjective. Each of us has different life experiences, so we can't base our understanding of how life works just on something we've experienced. However, God's word is truth. It is more sure. It is a safer place to rely on. Now, the experiences of life may or may not teach you truth, but truth can always be found in God's word. There may be something that seems right, that sounds right, but it could be totally against the Bible and what God's word says. I could spend a lot of time here looking at one thing or another. The, the one that popped into my mind the most is a phrase, God helps those who help themselves. And sometimes when people say, well, what, what they mean is you need to take responsibility for your actions, which is absolutely true. But the phrase itself, God helps those who help themselves, is not a scriptural teaching. The Bible teaches us we rely on God. We're desperately dependent on Him and on His help. The point I'm driving at is just because someone has a lot of life experience, just because someone knows a lot of facts about the Bible, they may know all the dates, all the authors, they could have the whole Bible memorized, they know every single controversy, debate about it, 
just because they know all that information does not mean that they love God with their minds or that they have His wisdom. If we know Bible trivia, but we don't live for God, our life hasn't been changed by Him, then that knowledge is worthless. On on Wednesdays, we're going through the book of James, and one verse there is James 3.13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? The one who has a lot of education, the one who's memorized the Bible? Not that those are bad things, but no, he says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He is wisdom because he lives it out. Maturity isn't guaranteed to come with age. You can be very old and lack maturity. Maturity is a gift of God's grace. Wisdom is a gift from the Lord. The researcher George Barna said, the primary reason people do not act like Jesus is because they do not think like Jesus. If we're not reflecting on God's word, then we shouldn't be surprised if we don't act like him. Spiritual growth in our lives, looking more and more like God, does not happen unless our minds are centered on and filled with God's Word. So how do we love God with our mind? We, we spend time in His Word. We read what He has said. We listen to His Word. We invest time in knowing God, the way He's communicated to us. Hopefully that, that's regularly a lot, but for maybe some of us, it's just starting with doing a little more than we do now. Maybe you struggle to open your Bible once a week. We'll try one day this week to read it. Maybe you read a little bit each day, but take some time to think about it more. Take the next step in growing, understanding more of what God's Word says so that He can shape our thoughts and actions so that we look like Him. So that's loving God's Word with our mind. What about loving God's Word with all your strength? With all your strength. And by strength here, I mean with your actions, with the steps you take in your life, with your choices, the things you do. What does it look like to love God's Word with the choices, the steps, the actions you take? Well, in verse 101, the psalmist tells us that he holds back, he restrains, he refuses, he keeps his feet from evil ways and evil paths. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. He knows if he goes down ways that are against God's word, they'll prevent him from doing what the Bible said in other places. So he avoids sin. He avoids tempting situations so he can better follow God. There's wisdom like this elsewhere in the Bible. The very first chapter of the book of Proverbs talks about the same thing, about our feet, our actions, what we do. The author says, my son, if sinners entice you, do not consent My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed blood. That's the same thing our psalmist is doing. He's letting God's word, his instructions, keep him from evil. Other people may be doing things that we know are against the Bible. It may sound harmless and fun. Yeah, I, I know the Bible says I shouldn't do that, but everybody else is doing it. It looks like a lot of fun. But if God's word is directing us another way, we must trust in him. We must follow him. We ask questions. We're like, what, what, what's wrong with 
going out and getting drunk every once in a while. What's wrong with that? It seems to go all right for people. What's wrong if I cheat on this test? My friend next to me did it. Nothing happened to him. What's wrong if I have uh, sex outside of marriage or I engage in a sexual fantasy in my mind? Well, what's wrong with doing that? Other people do it. It doesn't seem to be a big issue. But our author's driving at, no, these are roads to destruction, ruin for the soul. That's why the psalmist says he, he does not turn aside. He does not depart from God's rules. This is 102. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. He knows that a wise life isn't characterized by disobedience, but by reflecting God's goodness. He's heard what God has said. He wants his life to reflect him. He may be taking the advice that Joshua gave the people of Israel. Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land and then had a word of instruction for them. In Joshua 23, 6, he says, Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. And look, here's that same word, turning aside from it, neither to the right hand nor to the left. So the psalmist has this commitment, I'm not going to turn aside. But at the same time, in our passage, he gives God the credit. He says, God, you have taught me. God, you're the one who brought right knowledge and understanding of your word into my life. That's why we need a life that's saturated and fused with God's word and character. It's the only way to make godly decisions. Now we hear all that and we think, okay, Pastor, that, that sounds like a lot. That sounds really hard. Is there nothing good about doing this? Well, yeah, God's Word is sometimes challenging. It's difficult to apply to our lives. It will require all our strength, but it's not a hopeless struggle because there's joy to be found in following God. It is a sweet life doing what God had said. That's what our psalmist says in the very next verse, 103. He says, how sweet are your words to my taste sweeter than honey to my mouth? Now that's a verse that if you're not a Christian or if you're talking to somebody who doesn't know God, won't make a whole lot of sense to them. They're like, really? A book is sweet to you? Its words are, are sweeter than something else? But if we know God, we discover that there's genuine joy to be found living the way that God has called us to live. That doesn't mean that life is all sunshine and roses all the time. It doesn't mean everything always goes our way, but it means there's joy to be found in living God's Word. There's true contentment to be found resting in Him because God's Word brings the understanding that we need to follow this course of life. That's what he says in 104. Through your precepts I get understanding. He knows the right course of action. God's precepts help him know which way to go. And since God's word helps him, the psalmist responds to that by hating every false way and every wrong path. He's not saying he hates those who don't do what God says. No, he hates their way, their path, the choices that they have made, the false way that has ensnared them. Look at these emotions he has here. He's just called God's word something sweet, but he calls every false way something that he hates. This is teaching us the important lesson that sin, going against God, that's not just something to avoid. It's actually something to hate. Sin is not something to be avoided. It is something to be hated. 
And I was reflecting on this about the best way to understand it. Think about it this way. You can avoid something that you love. You can love something and avoid it. Uh, there's a couple ways you think about it. Maybe if you think back to, or you are in, in school, maybe you have a crush on someone, but perhaps they're dating someone else. So you, you avoid that person, so you don't have to talk to them. You still care about them, but you avoid them. Or we're in a time of there's a lot of illness and sickness, and they, they recommend when you get sick, you stay away from others. I know a couple months ago, I got COVID again, and so I spent a couple days away from my wife and daughter because we didn't want the baby to get sick. I still love them very deeply, but I was avoiding them. It's possible to avoid something that you love. Or maybe think about if you're trying to have a healthier diet, you avoid certain foods, but if you're honest with yourself, you probably love some of that food that you're avoiding. Well, in the same way, we can avoid a particular sin, but still love it, still desire it in our heart. And say, I'm, I'm not going to do that, but it looks really nice, and I really wish I could do that. God, though, calls us for a complete transformation. He wants to change our actions and desires where He becomes sweet to us. His Word becomes more precious than sin. That's why we need God's understanding not our own understanding of what we're doing. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. But if we're, if we're trusting in Him, if all our ways we're acknowledging Him, He says He will make straight our paths the way we go. Our psalmist has realized that. He knows he has something better. And what does he have? Well, look down to the next verse, verse 105, he knows that God's word is a lamp to his feet, a lamp to his actions, and it is a light to guide him on the path of life. It's tied right in there. He's applying this. His feet, his strength, his actions, what he's doing comes from the lamp, the light of God's word. Throughout the book of Psalms, light talks about God's guidance that he gives to those who are faithful to him those who honor his covenant, his agreement with his people. God's light provides his perspective. It provides hope to us when we're in darkness. A couple Psalms before this, Psalm 112 says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright and says about God that he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. This is where we find true light and hope. You won't find it in your feelings, your conscience, wishful or perhaps confident thinking things are going to be okay i know it i know it those things will not give you true guaranteed hope only god's word can give you that true hope and light your path show you where to go it's not so much that god's speaking to us in an audible voice telling us what decision to make in every circumstance it's more like we look at his word and his word is so shaped our lives that we make decisions we walk in a way that honors him. The Holy Spirit helps us understand, oh, that's what God has said, and he helps us apply it to our lives. If you know God's word, then when a major decision presents itself, you will usually know what to do. Whew, this would have been difficult for me a year ago, but because I've spent so much time on God's word, I know that this is the choice to make in this situation. And more importantly, his word also 
provides a light to us so we can see eternal life. Again, another proverb, Proverbs 6 says, the commandment is a lamp, the teaching a light, the reproofs of discipline. What do they lead to? The way of life. God's word shows us the path to salvation through Jesus Christ. He died, he rose again to make a way for us to know God. So it's not only a light for daily decisions, but it's a light to know our eternal destiny. He calls us to turn away from sin, trust in him, change us so that we can love him and love his word. So that's loving him with our strength, our actions, what we do. We're letting God's word guide us. Well, what about loving God's word with all your soul, with all your soul? And by soul, I mean your commitments, your desires, your purposes, the things that guide your principle. So maybe a better word might be life. That's why I put the little slash there. The word Jesus used in the passage is soul. But I'm talking about your life, what what informs your decisions. Your soul is here, as we're looking at it, is what guides you. As compared to strength, we just talked about, which is what you do. So what guides our psalmist? Well, in verse 106, he says he's sworn, he's promised, he's given an oath to keep God's word. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. It is his life commitment. He said, my life is going to be about doing what God has said. This idea of committing to that, the word used here is oath. We, we can see this elsewhere in scripture. Uh, one place to jump to my mind was the book of Nehemiah. In Nehemiah, God's people have been in exile, but they come together again in the promised land, and they say, you know, we're going to commit to follow God. In Nehemiah 10, 28 and 29, it says, the rest of the people, all who have knowledge and understanding, they join with their brothers, their nobles, they enter into a curse and an oath. They commit to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and his rules, and his statutes. Like this psalmist, they're committed to God. They want their lives to be about living for him, doing what he has said. That's their commitment, their driving principle. And it's a commitment to keep even in the face of suffering. Back in our passage, verse 107 tells us that our psalmist is afflicted. He is suffering. Things are hard for him. So he asks God to keep and preserve him, to revive him and restore him. I'm severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. He's trusting God to take care of him. We saw something like this earlier in Psalm 119, verse 50. He says, this is my comfort in affliction. When I'm suffering, it's because God, your promise, your word gives me life. He gets life, endurance to go through suffering because he has God's word with him. And since his life is about God's word, his soul is committed to God, then God is the one he turns to when he's in need. There's a biblical counselor named Jay Adams. He put it this way. When one is falling, he grabs for whatever is at hand. And if the word of God is not uppermost in his mind at such moments, then he will grab for something else. So if we're loving God with our soul, our life, then when rough times come, we turn to God. We turn to his word. We don't try to understand it ourselves. We don't immediately ask someone else's opinion. We can, of course. But I'm saying our thoughts turn to, God, you're the one I need help. I need your wisdom to know what to do. This is the psalmist commitment. 
And while he's doing that, he's not just sitting back, twirling his thumbs, waiting for God to rescue him. No, in the meantime, he wants to spend his life as an offering for God. In verse 108, he says, Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. These free will offerings or voluntary offerings, talk about in the Old Testament, they were used to celebrate God's goodness. Typically, you had a meal and you gave willing praise to God. The psalmist has obeyed God. Now he wants to celebrate what God is doing. It reminds me in the book of Hebrews where it says, through him, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What does that mean? It means the fruit of lips. It means we speak, we say, we sing his praises, we acknowledge him. But look again at our passage in Psalms. We just read verse 107 saying that he was suffering. So note when he's doing this, he is praising God, offering this sacrifice of praise. He's saying, God, you're good. You do good things to me. He's doing this while he is suffering. God's deliverance hasn't come to him yet. He's still in this moment of hardship, but he is expecting God is good and he will do good. Our response to God and his word should be prayer and praise, thanking him for what he has done for us and trusting him for what he will do in the future. That's the response of a life that loves him. The next couple of verses in the Psalm 109, 110, they give us some of the context about why things are so hard for him, why his situation is so difficult. In 109, he feels his life is in danger, but he again commits. He says, I do not forget your law. I do not forget to live according to your word. He's saying, trying circumstances, hardship, that's no reason for me to abandon this book. He's keeping his commitment to live for the Lord, as should we. In 110, he says, the wicked have set snares and traps, but he has not fallen into sin. He has not strayed or wandered from God's precepts. And something interesting I found there, this is verse 110, where he's saying what's happened to him is he has not strayed or wandered from God. He had a prayer request. He prayed something to God. He asked God something literally 100 verses before this. So if you go all the way back to verse 10 of this chapter, he says, God, with my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. You see, a hundred verses later, God has been faithful to him and has helped him not to wander or stray from God. His life is about commitment to God above everyone and everything else. When life is hard, he persists in praising God and keeping his commands. That's loving God and his word with our soul, with our life. We're committed to him. We do not wander. Why does he do this? Why is he doing all these things, keeping God's word, taking steps to follow God, thinking about God's word? Well, it's because he loves the Lord and he loves his word with all his heart. We've talked about mind, strength, soul. We also love God's word with all our heart. From his inner being, from the inside out, his life is about loving his God. And what that looks like for him, as verse 111 tells us, is that God's testimonies, his statutes, are his heritage. They are his inheritance. They're his treasure. 
They are his portion. They fill his heart with joy and delight. They make him rejoice. His heart has been changed so that when he sees God's word, when he reflects on what God has said, it fills him with joy. It brings happiness to his heart. A Baptist pastor named William Plummer wrote that the great error of most who profess true religion is that they do not make enough of it. They do not habitually feel that God's favor is enough to compensate for all losses. He's saying sometimes our problem is we, we think we have less than what we do. What we have is a relationship with God, access to eternal joy, but we think it's something less than that. The psalmist doesn't do that. He believes that God and knowing God in his heart is more than enough. And everything else that could happen to him is an acceptable loss. I wasn't sure if I was going to have time to share this story or not, but I think I do. It's a story that I'm borrowing from a, a writer named John Owen. He talks about somebody who was on a, on a, had to go on a journey. He got news that a relative had passed and he had a great inheritance that was coming to him. So if we put in our day, maybe you hear that somebody, a distant relative you've never heard of, just died in California, I guess. And all you have to do to claim this enormous mansion and everything you could ever want, there are uh, hired staff who work there, there's multiple vehicles for you in the garage, all you have to do is you have to make your way across the country. And you can't get flight tickets, so you just have to drive across. So you start this drive, you're going, you're going, and you are one mile away from this, this mansion, this, this dream home, when your car breaks down. Now you're one mile away from this amazing home where you're going to have as many vehicles as you could possibly want, but you broke down one mile away. Now wouldn't it be foolish to just sit down and complain, oh, woe is me. Why did this car break down at this part? No, he's saying there's, there's something so much better there that makes any loss that we have here seem so small in comparison. And again, we've seen this earlier in the book of Psalms, uh, in this chapter, verse 57 says, the Lord is my portion, I promise to keep your words. Truly obeying God's word, treasuring it as our portion and heritage should bring joy into our hearts. Now, I know that it doesn't often work that way in life. It's not always a joy we can see. Sometimes we're in a moment that everything seems dark. Everything seems to be going wrong. The circumstances, situations in life cloud that sense of joy. It's a struggle. But, friends, it is a joy that is present nonetheless. And we need to cling to that reality that there is joy to be found in knowing God. There's joy to be found in His Word. We need to cling to that even as we struggle for daily joy. We need to remind ourselves that there is joy to be found. I know I want to dwell in this hard, dark place, but there is joy to be found in God and in His Word. We remind ourselves, and we also can ask God to remind us. We can ask for His help to joyfully follow his word. God, help me to follow you, to obey you, do what you say out of my love for you. That's what the psalmist does. Look at verse 112. He says, I incline my heart. I, I direct my heart. That heart, what will give you joy and happiness is if you're performing, if you're doing 
what God has said, his statutes to the end, forever and ever, the very end of his life. Because if our heart belongs to God, we're headed for an eternal reward. Like that, that story, an eternal inheritance of joy and all hardship here will be forgotten in his loving presence. So loving God and his word with all our hearts means we long for it more than we long for a desire what we can find here. Now that may sound really difficult to you. You may say, I don't know. There's a lot of things I like here, pastor. How can I have that mindset of loving God, loving his word so much? I don't think I can do that. I think that's impossible for me. And if you think that, you're actually at a, at a good place because you've realized that you can't develop that love for God and his word on your own. You need help. Only God can renew your heart. And the way he does that is through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament promised this. In the book of Ezekiel, God says, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove that old heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a true living heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and then I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. In order to love God with all our hearts, all our soul, all our minds, all our strength, our heart must first be transformed. God must show us his love for us. In the New Testament, Paul says, God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Whether you realize it or not, if you're a follower of Christ, this is what happened to you. God has shown on your heart, revealed to you how truly wonderful and great Jesus is, and then you responded to him. He revealed to you that there was, there is Jesus, God's son. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life on your behalf, on my behalf. He died to pay for sin. He rose so he could bring that love and that life to us. Has that happened to you? Has God shown that light on your heart? Have you responded to what God has done by turning away from that, that old sin and instead turning to Christ in faith and trust? I pray if you haven't, then you'll talk to me or, or talk to somebody else about that, that you'll have that conversation about what does it look like to love God, to have him transform and change my heart. So, I end where we began. Let me ask you again. Do you love the Bible? The way you know that is, do you love God? Do you love Him and His Word with all your mind? Well, then fill it with Scripture. Spend time in His Word. Do you love God and His Word with all your strength? Well, then let the light of His Word guide your path, your decision-making, the choices that you make. Do you love God and his word with all your soul? Then commit to live for him first and foremost. Do you love God and his word with all your heart? Well, then cling to his joy. And if we are pursuing that, then why don't we take some time now to express that love in worship and praise to God for what he has done to make it possible for us to love him and to love his word.